So every uh, spring, which is uh, September here in beautiful Sydney, and it's beautiful weather today, um, every year, um, just after Father's Day, we run a program called Spring Sowing. And it's the idea where we get to uh, financially sow seeds into kingdom, into church, into leadership. Um, we've been running this program for, I think, five, six years now. And every year we sort of have a, a theme. So, you know, one year it was to fund a new pastor. Uh, one year it was to fund some new equipment. Um, but it's around this idea that um, the kingdom of God is, is, is uh, a garden that is worth sowing into. And, and, and we want to sow into that, not just with our time and our energy, but with our finances too. And uh, I'm, non, I, I'm not apologetic uh, in saying that. Um, this year, we, um, in, the, in the theme of our church this year of uh, gathered and scattered, and we just finished Acts and talked about the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Um, this year, our big... Um, Give this year is towards the global church. So it's actually not a project for inside of our, our walls as much as, you know, we wouldn't mind a few things around here. Um, this year we felt that uh, we need to bring a little bit more awareness to our, um, our community. I think sometimes, you know, we get a little bit insulated. Uh, and so this year our, our, our spring sowing project is going to be about giving to the global church. And this year we're going to be doing it through an organization called Open Doors. Uh, and, and today we've got um, Joel here from Open Doors to tell us more about the organization and, and more about the global church. Um, uh, Joel is the um, partnership manager, relationship manager. So if you have relationship problems... Go and speak to Joe. You're married? Yeah. yeah, well, there you go. Perfect. Two for one. Um, but Joel's here to share with us about, not just about um, open doors, but about the global church as well. So can we all welcome Joe? Thank you much, so much, Stephen. We're going to roll a video, um, and then I'm going to continue speaking. Thank you. like North Korea, where it's illegal to own a Bible or your family can be thrown in a prison camp for their beliefs. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. It's time to awaken to the reality of the persecuted church. In 1955, Brother Andrew, a newly committed Christian, began smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe, behind the Iron Curtain because he believed that everyone should have the freedom to know Jesus. He was given the scripture, Revelation 3.2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Since his first trip, Open Doors has expanded to work around the world providing Bibles and training for those who need it most. We train leaders in their homeland so they can be the light of the gospel in the darkest places. In 1981, we delivered one million Bibles to a secluded harbour in China and was described by Time magazine as one of the boldest missionary ventures of all time. 1989, we sent one million New Testament Bibles into Russia and a seven-year prayer campaign for the Soviet Union finished. 
We are a part of the body of Christ, called to the persecuted church, people of prayer, seeking to live by faith, devoted to Jesus Christ and his call, motivated solely for the glory of God. Open doors. Together, we serve the persecuted church. Thanks for running that. Well, the chapel, hello. It's uh, amazing and it's great to be with you this morning. Thank you to Pastor Stephen for inviting us to share with you and for hosting us here. Uh, my name is Joel, um, and as Stephen just said, I'm a relationship manager at Open Doors. And at Open Doors, we serve the persecuted church. A bit about me, I'm married for the last four and a half years to my wife, Kalina, uh, who's of Bulgarian descent. We got to visit Bulgaria for the first time in July, and that was amazing. Uh, we don't have any kids yet, uh, but we do have a pet cat called Hunter. Um, he's a long-haired ginger cat, uh, and I didn't really like cats um, before Hunter, um, but I've been working from home a lot. Maybe you have too, um, and we spent a lot of time together. Now he's very clingy, so um, we get along really well. Um, so Open Doors, at Open Doors, we serve the persecuted church. We help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. We help strengthen Christians living in some of the toughest places on the planet to be a Christian. Today, I'm just going to share a couple of stories, some scripture. I'll give you an understanding around persecution around the world. Um, and then you're going to have a time to respond via prayer um, and some other stuff that Pastor Stephen might explain later. Um, I'd like to, for you to imagine for a moment uh, that God had called you into the wilderness, into, into the desert. We see that Time and time again in Scripture that people were sent into the desert, whether it be Moses, Jesus, John the Baptist. I'd like to imagine that God had called you to the desert, whether that be in Australia. I actually haven't been to the desert in Australia. I don't know if anyone has. I don't think there's much out there. That's the reason why we haven't been there. But imagine God called you to leave everything you had to go to the desert. Would you do it if it was a clear command from God? Today, we're going to reflect on a Scripture uh, from Psalm 37. And Psalm 37 is written by David, who many of you may know from the Old Testament. And David was a man who had been hunted down uh, by King Saul. He was a man that was hunted. He was exiled. He, he was living in a cave for a while. He was on the run. And then he came back. He got made king. And then he committed adultery, committed murder. There was so many things in, in David's life that he went through. He went through the highs and lows of human life. Uh, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. And with David, he went through great times of victory, but also of suffering, and the scriptures don't shy away from that. And he reflects in this psalm, Psalm 37, on how evil people in this world, they tend to be, they look like they're doing good. And I don't know about you, but when you see uh, people that are not Christian, you see them, they're rich and they're wealthy and they're healthy, you're like, how does that even work? And why is it oftentimes that the righteous people, God's people, look like they're suffering? And he comes to this conclusion in this psalm, if you read the whole thing, I encourage you to, uh, that in this psalm, he says that eventually righteous people will be rewarded and evil people will suffer, particularly uh, throughout eternity. And reflecting back on his old life, in his old age, he shares this beautiful psalm. And, and I believe this psalm to be one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I don't know if you've heard this verse before, but it is amazing. And it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Psalms, I believe, personally, or if not in all of Scripture. And however, I've seen this verse 
in the West particularly, stretched and squeezed and often misconstrued to, to help people live a life more pleasurable, safe, and with more ease. And sometimes if we take this verse wrong, we can unfortunately reduce God to a health and wealth gospel or even worse, put him in a, as a genie in a bottle or even worse than that, a vending machine where we pay God with delight and he gives us whatever we want, a Lamborghini, a big house, whatever we please. Um, and unfortunately, perhaps the scariest thing is it, life would seem easier if that was to be true. If we pray to God, he gives us regardless of what he wants, he gives us whatever we want. That would be an incredibly scary proposition. But as I've heard the stories of the persecuted church where children in Iran are denied basic education because of their Christian faith, or where men and women in Iran are denied jobs because of their faith, or in Nigeria, when in 2021, an average of 12 Christians were killed a day. I spent some time in Egypt recently, which I'll share about in a moment, and people suffer for their faith. They suffer for following Jesus, a price that we might not always realize here in Australia, yet they're some of the most delighted and joyful people I have ever met. See, I asked you earlier to imagine yourself going to the desert. I was privileged enough about two and a half weeks ago to visit and do my first field trip with Open Doors, and we went to Egypt. Um, and we flew into Cairo around midnight, and we, we went around, and in Cairo, I don't know if anyone's been to Egypt, but in Cairo, people just don't sleep. Like, it was midnight, we were getting to a hotel around 1 a.m., and there's people on the streets, there's, there's tennis courts lit up, and people playing tennis, there's young families with prams and kittens and kids, and it's just, it's crazy. Um, and within two days of being in Egypt, we found ourselves in the desert, and I remember sitting in a 4th century monastery with a Coptic Orthodox monk and we are sitting and sipping on hot hibiscus tea and we are just asking him questions around life and faith and the presence of God. And he began to tell us about how he lived a life of fasting, of solitude and silence and he had been living in the desert for the last 26 years. And I don't know how old you were 26 years ago, uh, but that's, that's a very, very long time. Time to time, he would visit the city just for health appointments, but he, he would rarely go back into Cairo, and oftentimes people would look down on him because of his outfit, and I think we might even have a photo of him on the screen. Um, and people look down on him and insult him, but he lived a life, a hard life. And he, as a, as a monk, he had to make the choice to, if he was to be in the presence of God. He felt like he was called out by God to the desert. He had to live a, a life of obedience, poverty by choice, and of chastity, of abstinence. And he said, we asked him in our sort of Western mindset, we said, what's your goal in life? You know, you have to have a goal in life. What's yours? He says, look, us as monks, we don't really have a goal. We just want to be in the presence of God. And that, that shocked us. We're like, what do you mean? He's like, we want us to be in God and God to be in us. We don't have a goal. We, we know we already have God within us. Our goal is just to keep it and to stay in his presence. We already have it. We, we just must keep it. We must feel it and we must live it. And one of the hard things about being a monk is it might sound easy to be a Christian monk in the desert. You just sit around, you don't have problems, it's easy. Uh, but we, we began to hear about his day. He would wake up at 4 a.m. and pray for countless hours in the day. He'd work in the heat of the desert looking after the farm there. He had to leave his whole family. He had to disassociate with his family in order to be a monk. He had to change his family name. They literally have this practice where they go in. It's almost like a funeral service where he leaves every single thing behind in order to follow God. 
And, and that challenges me, is would I have the courage, would you have the courage to walk away from family, walk away with everything to follow Jesus? And it's, a, and it's a theme we see throughout the Gospels that people walk away from all these things to follow God. So I, I sat there and I was wondering, we were with our group and I was asking, wouldn't it be difficult to disassociate with your whole family to follow Jesus? And so I was pondering on that. So I asked him that exact same question. And he says, he says, look, for some people it would be. But he says it wouldn't be difficult if they have fallen in love with Jesus. If they understand God, they would be happy. And for me, that shook me to my very core. If they had fallen in love with Jesus. I think one of the greatest dangers in our Christian walk is that we measure our proximity to God based on our level of safety, on our level of safety and how good life is. Because if we measure our closeness to God based on how good life is going, when times are tough, we will feel like God's far away. And if times are going good, we feel like He's close. But one of the greatest lessons I found from this monk is that he knew that God was always with him. And it's a great lesson for us, no matter where we are, God is always with us. His presence is always there. It's not depending on how many times we read our Bible or how good the music was on a Sunday. God's presence is always with us. We just have to seek Him. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. First, to delight yourself in the Lord, it's a Hebrew word. It's an imperative uh, and it's a command. It means to be soft and delicate. The, the word picture of it is a luxurious cloth, pure pleasure. And it basically, this verse is saying that we'd be soft and delicate in the Lord. As we find pure pleasure in the Lord, we would spend time with Him, let Him shape us and mold us to become more like Christ. We're like clay in a potter's hand. And like uh, the monk said, God is in us and we are in Him. We need to have times in our life where it's only us and Jesus. Maybe it's not practical for all of us and all of us aren't called to be monks, obviously. But we need to find times in our life where we have uninterrupted moments and minutes in our life that we can seek Jesus. I don't know if prayer closets are old school, whether it be a prayer closet, whether it be in your car or backyard or in your bedroom. We need to have those moments and minutes where we just delight in God and see what He wants for our life. We need a place where the Holy Spirit can work on us, renew our minds, set our eyes on heavenly things, and take us away from the, oftentimes the distractions of this world that can keep us down. I want to read quickly from Acts chapter 16, and I was speaking on this uh, verse earlier in the year, but then uh, fortunately when we were in Bulgaria with my wife's family, we got to drive down into Greece and found ourselves uh, without planning to be at the archaeological site of Philippi where this actually took place. Um, and we got to see a little bit of uh, what this place looked like. And in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were walking in Philippi, a city of Macedonia, when a fortune teller came out and started screaming at them and annoy started to annoy the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul said to this fortune teller and the spirit in that girl, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And so she got delivered from the demon and the girl's owners were frustrated because they could no longer make money out of her. So they began to falsely accuse Paul and Silas before the city officials and they had them stripped and severely beaten. And then they were thrown into jail. And then we pick up this story here in Acts 16, 24 to 25. It says, when he, the jailer, received these orders from the officials, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they had been going through an all-day of ministering in Philippi, a city that they're not from. They've been delivering people of spirits. They've been healing the sick. They've been doing all the usual ministry things. And now they find themselves in jail. And in verse 25, it says, About midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. One of the key things that, I, I, that shook me about this verse, it says about midnight. I don't know about you, but midnight is a very vulnerable time to be awake. I'm an early night person. So when it gets to midnight, I'm just not myself. I'm acting strange. I'm saying things I shouldn't have. It's just, it's just crazy. And I can't imagine for Paul and Silas what it would have been, would have been like Sorry, at midnight. After a whole day of ministering, being severely beaten, it was, there should have been maybe a sense of injustice rising up with them. They're like, why are we here? We shouldn't be here. They should have protested maybe. They were, they were tired maybe, and I, this is probably what I would have done. They probably should have just had a nap and slept. It's midnight. It's, it's fine to get uh, some sleep where you are. Maybe they, maybe they should have caught upon God. And that's exactly what they did. It was a time where they could have been throwing a tantrum. They could have been cursing God and saying, God, we're your servants. Why have you put us in this cell? We were just being obedient to what you called us to do, and now we're being punished. But Paul and Silas were singing and praying to God in a prison cell. They chose to delight themselves in God. They sought the presence of God in a prison cell. They called upon God even in one of their harshest of situations. They remained soft and pliable. Where the world in this moment would probably screen pain and injustice, Paul and Silas prayed and sang to God so he could shape their desires and their perspectives in the cell. And what happened as a result? Suddenly, a violent earthquake hits that cell and miraculously the chains are loosened and they're set free. The other uh, prisoners were set free as well. And what happened in that moment? Because Paul and Silas chose to delight in God in that moment, the other prisoners and the jailer who, who tied him up and put him in chains, they got to witness the power of God in that moment. And God used Paul and Silas's suffering because their mindset and their perspective was delight to bring the jailer and his whole family to Christ. And to delight in the Lord is not to get whatever we want, but as we delight in Him, the desires of our heart are shaped and made new in our love for Him. Our earthly desires are replaced by eternal desires. And what I love about this is if it wasn't for Paul and Silas praying and delighting in God and allowing God to use their suffering, we may never had seen that jailer and the people in that cell get to witness the miraculous power of God. And I guess my question for, for myself and for you guys is, what moments of suffering and pain and injustice in your life can you delight in God and then other people would bear witness to what God can do through your life in those moments? It reminds me of a story of a girl called Susan, and we do have a first picture of her up there. I think she's in a blue shirt, if that helps. And Susan is a 14-year-old girl from Uganda, and she heard about Jesus for the first time when an evangelist visited her school. And she came from a strict Islamic family, and because of that, the message of the gospel compelled her Knowing that someone would sacrificially lay their life down for her because of love just shook her and she was so compelled by it. Her father, when her found out, he became infuriated that Susan was baptized and gave her life to Jesus. So he took Susan and her younger brother outside of their family home in broad daylight and threatened them with a knife to kill them if they wouldn't stop following Jesus. But Susan did not stop attending church. Her father then dragged her into a room in their house and told her to sit down on a mat in the middle of the room unless she wanted to deny Jesus. 
She was told not to move from that mat, and if she did, it would signify that she was leaving her faith. Susan's father shut the door and did not return to that room for three whole months. For three whole months, Susan sat in that room and she barely survived. And the only way that she did is when her father was out of the house, her younger brother would dig a hole under the door and pour water in it so she could lap it up with her tongue. Other times he would roast bananas and slide them under the door. But most of the time she could only feed from the mud on the ground. After several months of not seeing Susan, the neighbours obviously became suspicious and they confronted her little brother and asked about Susan's whereabouts. Reluctantly and against his father's orders, he told them everything. So the neighbours immediately called the police. The police came, they, they came into the home, they broke down the door, only to find Susan sitting on the mat. She was in this tiny, filthy, windowless room and... When they found her, the bones in her legs had begun to grow to the way she had been sitting. Her hair was yellow due to the lack of light. Um, her fingernails were long, her eyes were sunken, and at 14 years old, she was weighing less than 20 kilograms. She was, she was bony weak. She was unable to talk or walk in that moment. She was rushed to a nearby hospital and received, uh, she was suffering from starvation and received multiple surgeries to her hips and her legs. And it's, it's an extreme, horrific story. And we have maybe the second photo up there of Susan. And we asked her, our team asked her, why didn't you stand up or walk around to relieve your legs uh, while you were in that room? And she replied, my father told me if I left that mat, I'd be denying Jesus. And I couldn't do that, so I sat. And I mean, I think that's what breaks me is that Susan was so committed in the infancy of her faith and at such a young age, not to deny Jesus that she felt like she couldn't stand up from that match. She desired God above all other things. And Open Doors were notified about Susan's situation. We came alongside her, helped support her through multiple surgeries, through hospital. Um, she had multiple surgeries over multiple years. And we supported her through a schooling, her relocation into a safe environment and many other of her immediate needs. And see, I think the challenge I face is not that I have desires. I don't think desires in and of themselves are bad because God gave us them. I think the challenge is for me is I often desire things so small in compared to God. I desire things so subordinate to God like money or temporary pleasures or material items when all our soul and my soul truly desires is our creator. And after meeting Jesus, our desires, we should no longer desire the things of former, but we should desire the things of God. And we need to recognize, as Susan recognized, and John Piper says this really well, that God is the most desirable, soul-satisfying treasure that brings the greatest satisfaction and happiness in our lives. I think the New Testament equivalent of the verse that we have been sharing about today, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart, is Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the other things will be added unto you. When we delight ourselves in God, our desires become fixated on God. He shapes them and He molds them, and we're pleased to be in His presence. It's to put God above culture, temptation, and comfort and convenience in our lives. To reinforce it, to delight in God is not to get what we want. To delight in God is to shift our desires to align with His perfect will and purpose for our life. When we delight in God, we say, God, let me see what you see. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Speaking of Susan's story, 
It's a heartbreaking, tragic story, and one of the most extreme ones I've heard personally from the persecuted church. But the interesting thing about Susan's persecution is that Susan is not the only one around the world being persecuted. We estimate that in, in 2022, there are over 360 million Christians suffering from higher severe levels of persecution. 360 million. That's one in seven Christians we estimate worldwide. And Open Doors helps persecuted believers in over 70 of those countries, helping them follow Jesus no matter the cost. We work with local partners in countries like Iraq, North Korea, India, China, Colombia, Egypt, um, all around the world. And I have given you a top 10 uh, list on the screen. And this is a world watch list that we, we give out each year, the top 50 most dangerous places in the world to follow Jesus. This is the top 10. And I don't know if you've ever been to any of these countries or you know people from them. Um, but it's an interesting list. Afghanistan's number one, North Korea number two. North Korea was number one for over 20 years, um, only to be toppled by Afghanistan last August when the Taliban took over Kabul. I think one of the most surprising ones there is India. India's number 10, quite high, particularly in comparison to other Asian countries. Uh, there's kind of a Hindu nationalist regime happening there where not only Christians are being persecuted, but also Muslims in India by Hindu extremists. Our brothers and sisters around the world... And I say brothers and sisters uh, intentionally because we are a global family. We're a global body of Christ. We're all connected. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we all are a part of the body of Christ. And oftentimes we can view the global body of Christ as there's one church here, one body of Christ in Australia, then there's one over in India, then there's one in China, and then there's one in Egypt. But no, 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 there's, we don't have those divisions in the body of Christ. We are all one body, and everyone is, that follows Jesus around the world is our brother and sister. But our, our brothers and sisters, they, they suffer at the hands of government, of religious extremists, of family, community, and social groups. And see, Open Doors is a charity that is here to raise financial support, prayer support, and awareness for the persecuted church. But we operate a little bit differently to most charities, and I'll tell you why. One of the main reasons we operate differently is because many charities they, that serve things like poverty or, or modern slavery or world hunger, which are all noble and important causes that we need to serve, a lot of them try to eradicate and stop the cause that they serve. Open Doors does not exist to stop persecution. And, and in many ways, we don't even aim and we don't even exist to limit its spread. We understand that persecution is biblical. It's been happening, and it sounds like you went through the book of Acts just recently. It's been happening since the book of Acts, where the church of Jesus Christ has faced pressure and opposition in Acts chapter 8, the gospel spreads out of Jerusalem to Samaria and all these other places because of persecution. Persecution often spreads the gospel. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the apostle Paul says to Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, Jesus was persecuted, all the disciples were persecuted. So our aim isn't to stop persecution because persecution exists wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared. Instead, we exist to help strengthen believers to live through persecution and shine the light of Jesus more brightly and boldly where they are. And we do this in a variety of ways, and I've given three categories on the screen of how we work. It's not limited to this, but we try to summarize it in this way. Uh, in discipleship training, so we help provide Bibles to those who don't have Bibles. Discipleship training, persecution preparedness training, so we help people prepare for persecution. What does it look like if you're a new believer or maybe you're an old believer and you've never faced persecution before? How do you respond to the pressures of that? 
We help with emergency relief, so we help with food, medicine, and other essential goods, providing safe houses for people fleeing extreme persecution. And that looks different in a variety of different ways. When the Delta crisis hit India in June 2021, I don't know if you guys heard how bad um, India was going with that crisis. People, I had a friend over there, and he said almost there was almost one person in each of his family's households that was passing away. It was just, it was a horrid time to be uh, in India, let alone an Indian Christian. And in, in many rural villages, many Christians were denied basic food and medicine from government distribution points because of their faith, many of them having to conceal their identity, go to other villages and receive aid. And we helped over 100,000 Christians in India with basic food and medicine. And over 80% of those reported that they had been denied aid because of their faith in those places. And um, they're having a hard time there. So that's an example of emergency relief. And then community development. We help Christians with job training and supporting them in their businesses. We've heard stories, particularly out of Southeast Asia, in rural villages, uh, where cows and people's livelihoods are being slaughtered because of their faith or their, uh, their stocks ruined or grocery stores ransacked. Um, so we help local believers continue to do ministry by financially supporting them um, through those means. So I, as I invite you later on, or as we invite you as a church later on to partner with Open Doors, you can know that you're helping deliver Bibles or provide emergency aid to people living in some of the most toughest places on the planet to be a Christian. Susan, she forsook all fleshly desire as she valued Jesus more than all these things. She was willing to pay the cost of faith. And for people like Susan, particularly throughout the COVID period, they didn't have job seeker or job keeper. They don't have the government to rely on. And many times even their own family abandoned them. And us as, the, as brothers and sisters, we're able as a global family to help them where they need it. If the church doesn't help the church, who will? I wanted to share with you one of the first ever stories I heard from the persecuted church. And it's actually quite special because I just came back from Egypt and, and this is where this incident happened. It's of a lady called Nadia and we can show her on the screen. She's a beautiful Egyptian Coptic believer. And... Her and her family were traveling one day to a monastery, uh, St. Samuel's Monastery in the, in the middle of Egypt, near St. Mina. And she uh, was traveling on Ascension Day with her family. Some of her family from the U.S. Who, were, who immigrated over there came back to visit them. And they were traveling to this monastery. And on the street of the monastery, Nadia noticed that there were some men there in military clothing. And... I just came back from Egypt, and I can tell you, it is not unusual to see police officers and men dressed in military clothing. There is checkpoints every few kilometers, um, people with machine guns. Sub, our security driver on our bus had a submachine gun. There's guns and people in military clothing everywhere. Not unusual. She thought they were there prote to protect the monastery, but unfortunately for her and her family, the opposite was true. And the men shot the wheels of the bus and then entered with evil intentions. The terrorists then went onto the bus and they confronted each man on the bus after stealing their jewelry and all their um, possessions. They confronted each man on the bus to either convert to Islam or die. They then approached Nadia's biological son, Haini, and Nadia, she, well, she watched on from the back of the bus. She saw Haini raise his wrist and many Coptic believers, uh, and we saw almost every Coptic believer with this on their wrist, they have a, a tattoo of a Coptic cross. And that's their public profession of their faith. And many churches, you actually, that's your entry identification to get into the church to show that you're one of them. He raised his wrist. And then she heard his last words, no, I would not. I am a Christian. Nadia told her, she said, maybe you think I would have rather seen my son make a different choice. 
And of course, I'm terribly sad and angry because I've lost my son. But I'm happy that I witnessed the faith that I raised in him. I'm grateful that he did not deny Christ, even with his life in danger. He made the right choice, Nadia said, and that's been a huge comfort for me. Nadia, well, she survived the bus attack, bus attack along with many other women and children, uh, despite being struck by a bullet in her arm that she has limited movement in and had to receive surgery for. She said, without God's comfort, I would have gone crazy. And then she referred us to a favorite Bible verse, and it's the words of Jesus. And look, I've heard this verse before, but to hear it coming, hear it, imagine it coming out of her lips and in her situation and context, it gave me goosebumps. It's from Matthew 10, 28. It's the words of Jesus, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so a concluding statement that really got me, if I meet the attackers of my son and they kill me for my faith, I'd be happy because I joined my son Haney in heaven. But more than that, I pray that the attackers of my son will be touched by God and change their ways. I mean, there's two things in that concluding statement from Nadia that, that shake my comfortable Christianity to the core. The first one is that if I, if I was shot for my faith, I'd be happy because I joined my son Haney in heaven. I think just the certainty she has of heaven and that she's going to see her son and be in the presence of the Lord, that, that shakes me that she could approach a situation like that with such clarity and certainty. The other thing is she says, I pray for the attackers of my son that they'll be changed by God and change their, and, and change their ways. And, and I mean, I would say 85% of people here in Australia would say that those terrorists, well, they deserve capital punishment. They deserve to be killed. They don't, they don't deserve a second chance. And yet Nadia in her pain and in her mourning says, I'll pray for them. I pray, I pray that they will change their ways and be touched by God. And I don't think I've ever heard a greater example of someone living out the words of Jesus from the Sermon of the Mount to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. That she would pray for the terrorists, the murderers, the attackers of her son in a way that would show them grace and love. Uh, I think that's incredible. And I think us here in the West uh, when we face the, sometimes the social or cultural pressures that are increasing sometimes uh, in, in our families or in our workplaces around the Christian faith, what does it mean to be bold and courageous and stand firm for our faith, but also to do that with a, with a, uh, a climate and a, and a sense of love and forgiveness and grace and kindness? How, how do we do that? And I think Nadia gets that balance correctly. And I don't think anyone could show that level of forgiveness if they themselves didn't delight in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we delight in the Lord, we let our desires be shaped by who God is. I pray that as you've, as you've heard the stories of the persecuted church as I come to my conclusion, uh, that you in your life would begin to think about what does it look like to delight myself in the Lord? What does it mean to have my desires shaped by who he is? The second thing I'd love you to remember is that you're a part of the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, it's a chapter, I encourage you to read it. Um, it's a chapter about the body of Christ. In verse 26, it says, if one part of the body suffers, the other parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all should celebrate with it. We at Open Doors take that verse there and we see that as our biblical responsibility. When other parts of the body suffer for following Jesus, that we would come alongside them, we would suffer with them. We would remember them, we would help them. Like a body, if a body was to receive a wound or a cut, all the blood in the body rushes to that site. 
We see, it, we see it the same with the body of Christ, that we would rush to the aid of our brothers and sisters. And I'll leave you with one last verse from Hebrews 13, verse 3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Today, as I finish up, I'm going to give you, leave you with two things that you can do personally uh, to be connected and to help the body of Christ and the persecuted church. The first one is to pray. We, we believe prayer is one of the most important things you can do for our persecuted brothers and sisters. I remember sitting around a room with about 10 to 12 persecuted believers in Egypt a few weeks ago. And one of the things they would, they would beg us to do and they would urge us to do when we were finishing up giving them hugs and, and high fives and saying goodbye to them is please, please, please pray for us. So I encourage you to pray for the persecuted church. How, how do we do that? I have some resources at the back desk and there's some resources online that I can direct you to if we run out of them that can give you a daily guide. We release a quarterly guide that each day you can pray for the persecuted church. It gives you a name of a believer or a country and it gives specific prayer points on how you can incorporate that into your daily devotionals or into your church rhythms. Um, so I encourage you to do that. On your seats, you will see this uh, paper slide here. Uh, on the back, there's a QR code and a link and you can actually sign up for prayer updates if you go onto that link. Um, if you want to become a monthly or regular giver, you can do that too, but this link is primarily for prayer. Just chuck in your name and your email, uh, and we will send you regular prayer updates as well to help you out. The other way you can support the ministry is to financially give to the ministry. I think I'll leave a little bit of that up to Stephen to share about, but if you want to help the persecuted church and give practically to the persecuted church, you'll be helping believers in some of the toughest places, delivering Bibles to those who are in need, helping people flee persecution when their life is on the line, and helping in a variety of different ways in places like Vietnam, uh, Egypt, North Korea, and over 70 countries throughout the Middle East, Africa, parts of South America, um, and Asia. I'd like to thank you guys so much uh, for having Open Doors here this morning. It's been a great privilege even to meet you guys before the service and, and meet you guys and your friendly faces. Uh, I'll be at the back desk outside um, and there'll be some resources there. If you have any questions that you would like to ask me about the persecuted church, I don't know everything, but if you have a question, I can try to give you an answer or find it out for you. And I'd be happy to gift you with some free resources there as well. Thank you. I'm just going to pray before we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this wonderful congregation here at the chapel. We thank you, God, that you have purposed each and, one of the, each and every one of them with a plan and a purpose, God. And I know in life, things aren't always easy. There is suffering, there is hardship. And God, I pray as, as everyone here delights in the Lord, I don't know what their family struggles are with their faith. I don't know what the community and cultural struggles are, are with their faith. But I pray as we've heard the stories of the persecuted church, we would be inspired to live a life that is bold and courageous, yet loving and forgiving, that we would recognize that we are a part of the body of Christ, that we have brothers and sisters, we have family members across the world who struggle in their faith because of the persecution that they experience. And God, I pray that we would not forget about them, that we would pray earnestly and consistently and persistently for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And God, I pray today as we've heard the stories that would be inspired in our faith to pray and to give and to think about our brothers and sisters and remember them in their times of need. Our God, we thank you for the great generosity and privilege it is uh, to be given the time here to speak in front of this wonderful group of people. God, we thank you because you are mighty, you are glorious, and you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.